welcome to the first ever episode of Hoop Theory. My name is Logan Wortman. Hello to the audio only listeners, and also hello to those of you watching the video version on YouTube. I originally recorded this episode a little over a week ago now, but since I'm new to the whole video thing, recording and editing, it's taken a lot more time and energy than I had at my disposal this past week. So it's been really hard to get productive in editing video and stuff like that, mainly just because I suck at it. Originally, I really wanted to do a lot with the editing, like throwing up a video on the screen, maybe of like a play that I'm referencing or talking about, or especially like just images of people and people's names and stuff like that when I'm referencing them. Just because I know there's people that are going to be watching the videos that don't know like a ton about the NBA and stuff. They're more just so watching it because they know me. So I thought it'd be a good idea to do stuff like that. But I honestly am just so tired of working on this episode at this point, and I just want it to be done. Mainly just because it's not something that was really on my to-do list of things to do for the podcast and things to do for this show moving forward. Not really a part of my whole like overall plan of what I want to cover, what I want to make content about. It was kind of just like a spontaneous sort of topic and thing that came up and I was like, you know, I'll just do the first episode about this. But it's not worth like dragging it out this long uh, and pushing everything else back uh, that I'd like to be working on for the show and everything just because I'm still trying to finish this episode up. So those of you watching the video on YouTube may notice that I did a little bit of editing, like putting up images on screen and stuff like that towards the beginning of the episode. And then it just stops not too far into the episode. I apologize for that. I still do want to do that kind of stuff in the future. Probably just with some shorter video stuff though. Probably not something that's super long like this. I already do have some ideas in mind for some shorter videos and stuff like that to make. So I'm sure I'll really, you know, dive deep into the editing and doing that stuff. It should just continue to get better and better the more I gain experience in editing videos. Cause you know, I just started doing it 100% self-taught. I just have access to Adobe Premiere and I'm completely just doing stuff on the fly. seems like every time I sit down to edit and I've been doing something a certain way like this entire time, I actually find a new way to to do something and, and make it much faster. But so the main reason I wanted to record this intro section was to point out that the main overall topic that this episode is about, which is the firing of Minnesota Timberwolves president of basketball operations, Gerson Rosas, and how I felt it could be related to the Ben Simmons situation is not looking very probable at this point. Since I recorded this episode, a statement from the Wolves organization came out revealing that there was an intense feud between Rosas and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to pronounce this guy's name wrong. I've never actually heard it said out loud before. So here it goes. Sachin Gupta, who is Minnesota's executive vice president of basketball operations. And he's the one who actually got promoted to replace Gerson Rosas after he was fired but apparently it was a rather toxic work environment in the Wolves front office. And it even went as far as Rosas banning Gupta from team facilities and the place in which he was employed. And on top of this, Gerson Rosas, who is married, apparently was having intimate relations with somebody within the Wolves organization. And this was also something that I guess the whole front office in Minnesota knew about. And it was something that members of the staff understandably described as uncomfortable. So it's probably not about the Ben Simmons situation, I'm guessing is probably more about those things. But so I do mention later on in the episode that it's possible that the reason that Rosas got fired could be something crazy like this, you know, that would warrant the unusual timing of the move. But in trying to connect it to his work as a GM and making player transactions and, you know, basketball related moves, I theorize it could have something to do with Ben Simmons maybe ownership and other members of the front office being on a different page than Rosas was in acquiring Ben Simmons in a trade. But you know, with that, I still don't think that the content or the topic of this episode was completely ruined. You know, it is just me examining and theorizing, you know, the ins and outs of what a Ben Simmons to the Wolves trade would look like. 
and how Carl Anthony Towns could fit on the Sixers, hypothetically, which is just something that I feel like this show's supposed to be about, you know, just fun hypothetical situations and really analyzing stuff like that. So all that stuff still holds up. But I just thought making that update about this topic at the top of this episode was a pretty good idea and somewhat necessary, I'd say. But yeah, that should be it. I'll let you guys get into the actual episode now. And let's roll that intro again, just for fun. Hello, and welcome to Hoop Theory. This is episode one. Tracy McGrady, Chauncey Billups, Oscar Robertson, Amari Stoudemire, Chris Bosch, Michael Porter Jr. Sorry if I'm missing any notable number ones. I kind of just had to throw MPJ in there at the end because I'm a Nuggets homer. I just thought it'd be fun for this new show to say like an NBA legend that goes along with the episode number. Also, I wasn't really prepared for number one, so that was just right off the top of my head. So I'm probably missing somebody. I just don't know. I think Oscar Robertson is probably the GOAT of number one, I'd say. Yeah, the wait is over. It's finally here. Hoop theory. At least I'm pretty positive that's what I'm calling it. I'm recording the first episode right now, so I better be sure. I'm not sure if I like hoop theory or hoops theory better. You know, I came up with the idea just a few months ago to call it hoop theory. And then like a month later or a couple months later, you know, when I recorded that final Next Man Up episode, I think I referred to it as hoops theory. And I kept saying hoops theory because I thought that's what I called it. But then I went and looked at the logo I mocked up for it a while ago uh, and it said hoop theory. So who knows at this point, but it's finally here. This is episode one. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I've been doing the Next Man Up podcast for a little over a year. I guess I've tried to reel myself back a little bit to kind of enter this thing again from a different angle and not focus very much on the news cycle of it um, and do more of just the content that I want to make, I guess. It's not necessarily like news cycle based or time reliant. That's why I'm calling it hoops theory or hoop theory. I already got messed up again just because it'll be more theoretical type stuff like team building, historical type things, legacy, player molds, you know, the roles that different guys play, kind of like the prototype of different play styles, you know, looking into like different players developments that stand out to me basically whatever i guess i'm gravitated to and whatever that is and so you know it's kind of ironic how this very first episode you know of the of this new show that the whole idea of it i guess my whole idea of it starting it and rebranding is to not be about you know the news of the nba and shift over to what i was just talking about but for this very first episode we're talking about the ben simmons drama stuff which there's been a lot of news about lately and so it's kind of a news thing i guess so we're already off to a great start on that no but really i think that this has a lot more to do with team building and roster construction and trades and things like that than really just news in general. And, you know, I'm not against doing anything with the news. It's just, I don't want to stress and try to squeeze content out just to do the news and to do it in timely matter to match the news rather than what actually works for me. So I'm available right now kind of. And the Ben Simmons stuff is really fresh. So it works out. Anyways, before we get into all of that stuff, though, make sure to like subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, I didn't even mention yet that I might be talking a little bit differently than people who listen on Spotify are usually used to. And that's because I'm talking with a camera on me now. I have a video going up on YouTube. I'm planning on doing that for most of these episodes. Just going to be basically me most of the time recording, talking, uploading the video to YouTube and uploading the audio to Spotify. 
But you know, there's less than a month now until the NBA season starts, which is pretty nuts. And so before then, there are some episodes that I do want to record with the other guys. If uh, any of you listening do not know or are not aware, um, that's probably because you haven't listened to much of the Next Man Up podcast in the past. I typically have a lot of guest appearances with Anthony Levzenuk and Jacob Roth of The Jacob Roth Show, which he's been uploading episodes recently on Spotify and YouTube, I saw. So go check that out at The Jacob Roth Show. But I'm wanting to get with them to record episodes soon. Anthony's out of state right now, and I've been meaning to hit up Jacob. I already hit up Anthony. Him and I are probably going to do the NBA preseason power rankings in a tier list format. Um, If you guys remember last year, Jacob and I did a way too early power rankings. That was like right after the bubble season in Orlando, right after that season ended, before anything with free agency or the draft or anything started. And we did that same type of format, the tier list. And a lot of things changed, obviously. Uh, It wasn't super accurate just because it was way too early. So I wanted to do um, an episode with Anthony to do the uh, power rankings just because I did it with Jacob last year. And then I had a video with Jacob that I want to do really soon. And I keep forgetting about it. So I'm going to text him about it uh, right now. I'll just text him right now. But I want to do a making sense of the 2021 Atlanta Hawks video. And the reason I wanted Jacob on that episode is because last year's power rankings, the way too early power rankings I was talking about before, in the tier lists, I believe we had championship or bust was, was the top tier. And I think I had Lakers and Clippers there and he had just the Lakers. This isn't important, but the different tier names were championship or bust, legit contenders, and then dark horse contenders. I believe it was playoff race below Dark Horse. Then it was competitive, but not enough. And then it was potential tankers. Anyways, in the Dark Horse tier, the Dark Horse contenders, Jacob Roth of the Jacob Roth Show put the Atlanta Hawks. This was right after the bubble ended in 2020. And even if we did that tier list like a month before the playoffs started, like uh, of this year, the 2021 playoffs started, I still would have thought he was crazy. Less crazy but still crazy. The beginning of the season, they came out to a little bit better of a start than I was expecting, but it still wasn't good. And I believe, you know, for a lot of the season, they were in that eight, nine range. I'm kind of getting into too much of what, you know, the episode that I'm going to record with Jacob is about. So I'm not going to explain (laughs) that at all. Just know that we're going to talk about it. Atlanta Hawks were not expected to do well in, in terms of like being a playoff team and like winning a playoff series. And they went to the conference finals and won like a game or two in the conference finals. Two, yeah, for sure. They won two. It was a six-game series. They, I think they won, yeah, they won game one against the Bucks. Anyways, but the only person I guess that was expecting that, that I knew, was Jacob. And he's not even like a huge basketball guy, but, you know, he was really passionate about that take even at the time when he made it. So it, it'll be fun to look back at that and talk about how this happened, like why Atlanta performed the way that, it, that they did. And I'm planning on doing episodes about a lot of teams from last year. Uh, do like a similar type of thing. Um, like I'll I'll have Jacob out again for uh, the Celtics when we do theirs because that's his favorite team. Um, we all live in Nebraska, but he's a Boston guy, a sports fan, just because we don't have anything around here other than like OKC and Denver and Chicago, Minnesota, all are somewhat kind of close, but not really. And Anthony is a Philly fan because he actually lived in Philadelphia for a little bit. I'm a Nuggets fan. 
And that's just because they're one of the closest teams and I've liked them since I was a little kid because of Mello and AI and eventually Chauncey Billups too. But anyways, so I'm going to do a video with Jacob for Hawks and Celtics, like I said, eventually. And when I do a video about the Sixers from last year, that will definitely be a video. And I'll do that with Anthony. Probably do the Nuggets one by myself. I might do the Bucks one by myself. That will be one of the first ones, obviously, because, you know, reigning champs. So they deserve it. Lakers will be another, you know, top one that will be done. I'm going to kind of go. Th I'm not going to go through every team, but uh, the Suns, you know, just a lot of the more important ones from last year. Probably the Jazz as well. Oh, and Nets, obviously. But anyways, that's what we hopefully got coming down the pike here at Hoop Theory. That sounded kind of weird, but let's get into this stuff that we're going to talk about. Ben Simmons and trade things with him. I need to stop looking down. I keep looking down. You look at the camera. So Ben Simmons. So this is uh, something I was texting about with uh, the aforementioned Jacob Roth and Anthony Levsonuk. And I kind of hate when we do that, honestly. I mean, I, I love talking sports with those guys or anything, obviously. But um, sometimes I feel like I, we get out like our best content of like things we're talking about over text or on our like on Instagram DMs and stuff like that instead of like while we do an episode, you know, doing an episode about it but we're not available to record at all times. So yeah, I just thought this is a good topic to kind of touch on. And I, I just figured I would at least mention that we already kind of talked about this over text and stuff just so like, I'm going to be kind of regurgitating the same takes that I that I uh, typed out yesterday. So I don't think it's really stealing if it's from yourself. Yeah. And I also saw over on Jacob Roth show on uh, his latest episode on Spotify that he actually talked about this. He, he did the uh, Ben Simmons topic. I was planning on doing this already. That was kind of weird that we're like, you know, both talking about the same exact thing, kind of the same exact scenario and discussion too, but on different shows, not doing it together. But anyways, so for uh, anybody who doesn't know, I know that I do have some friends and people that listen to the podcast and maybe watch this video uh, that don't know like a ton about NBA and basketball. So I'll explain this a little bit in depth. So Ben Simmons, first pick in the 2016 draft. He's been a player that, uh, you know, there's been this whole narrative around him and the 76ers that uh, him and the other star player in Philly, Joel Embiid, do not fit together. Uh, Joel Embiid has struggled with injuries his whole career. So for a while, there, there was a toss up. There was kind of a debate between, you know, which one does Philly want to keep and stuff like that. And also Ben Simmons, I feel like a lot of his value has been kind of projected value. Like uh, people think what he's going to grow into in the future, what he's going to develop into. And that I think his development has actually, it's its definitely disappointed, you know, most of the people uh, that definitely that were on Team Ben at the time, but even people who were speculative or even people that were on Team Embiid, even they are probably surprised by the lack of, you know, development that we've seen from Ben Simmons, specifically on the offensive end so far in his career. The whole thing is Embiid is probably the most dominant paint presence in the NBA. Um, you know, that's where he gets his work done on the offensive end. Ben Simmons is not a shooter, never has been, and he doesn't even attempt three-point shots. So he's just about like the worst floor spacer um, in the NBA um, in terms of, you know, three-point spacing, stretching out the defense on the perimeter. So generally that just makes it a lot harder for your offense to run at the rim if it's not that literal person that's the bad spacer who's scoring at the rim. So them together, especially in late game situations, and those are like, you're one and two, those are your best guys. And they just kind of get in each other's ways because what Ben Simmons brings to the offensive end of the court is primarily, and it has been his whole career, the stuff that he can do with the ball in his hands. But if the ball's in his hands, the ball's not in Embiid's hands. And Embiid has proven to be the much more effective and efficient player 
to go to as your option, your number one option to score and everything like that. Ben is really more of a facilitator and Embiid's not going to just play second fiddle to a facilitator that doesn't create any space. You know, a role man for a guy like him isn't going to get a whole lot of, you know, residual value in plays because of how frequently the defender is going to go under screens because he doesn't have a threat to shoot at all. So Embiid really doesn't get any sort of advantage out of a two-man game. And they're both just camped down at the block all game long, essentially. It would be better if Simmons was, you know, did more things off ball. Like, you know, if he was a more intuitive cutter, you know, had more feel for the game in that sort of way. Uh, you know, he, if he would crash the boards and crash the weak side to get nice dump off passes, like in cutting situations with Embiid, that'd be better. It'd also be better, you know, not all that is to blame on Ben. That's one of Embiid's weaknesses. Even though he's a dominant paint force, he's not like a Jokic or even like, you know, a Vucevic or something like that to where he can consistently make those kinds of reads and those kinds of passes out of the low post. So basically to sum it all, up they they suck together that's not exactly fair and i actually you know th that's the kind of take that makes that whole side that whole region of people that were a thing for so long that makes me cringe thinking back to it i those people have been quiet for a while now i bet the people that always used to say after every season when everybody was saying get simmons out of there get Embiid out of there they need to split them up in some way all those people they're like simmons and Embiid are fine they work fine like there's no pro they say like there's no problem with simmons and Embiid together look at they've had 51 seasons the last couple of years uh they they can work just fine together it's like okay they yeah they won 50 games that means they're like a four seed uh usually something like that and they haven't made it out of the second round those guys and they a lot of times haven't made it out of the first round with those guys so you know nobody's arguing that they haven't been a pretty good team but they would be a lot better those players themselves would be a lot better if they weren't on each other's team that's the entire point and the people who argue they're a pretty good team when they're together that's what they're missing about that argument they're missing the point it's it's not optimal it's not ideal far from it. And last season, people kind of started to talk about that less. Uh, the Sixers went off, you know, to, to a really good start in the season. But they were they were number one seed in the East all season long. And a big part of that was, you know, Ben Simmons was playing well. Uh, he made another all-star team. And like, just like the last couple of seasons now, uh, where he's had a really good stretch during the season, like before the all-star game, and, you know, kind of squeaks in there, gets an all-star appearance. And then after uh, the all-star game, it, it seems like almost immediately he has like the worst stretch of the season. Uh, he has, goes through a really bad slump. It was really bad this year. And he it never really got back up there, even when the playoffs started. But earlier this season, you know, he, he went off and scored 42 against the Jazz. But the main thing, Ben Simmons was uh, in Defensive Player of the Year contention. I believe he did finish second. A lot of people actually did think he should have finished first. He turned himself into the best wing defender in the NBA this past year. So that was a huge leap from where he was as a prospect coming out of college. That was not something that was on the scouting report. You know, he was compared much more to like a LeBron type of offensive player. Defense seemed to not give much of an effort ever, but he's really turned around on that end of the floor and really developed Super Bowl, which is something that I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for. When people talk about his development, usually I think it's just because they're talking about offense, but they don't really make that specification. He's developed a lot on the defensive end of the floor, um, a lot more than almost every other player has. So that's really big. That shouldn't go unmentioned, I guess. But in the playoffs this past year, uh, Simmons on offense was scared to shoot in a lot of scenarios because he, I think he had one of the worst, if not the worst, playoff performance in terms of free throw percentage and the Hawks actually their game plan at the end of a lot of those games was to literally just send Ben to the line I believe the Wizards were even doing it the round before they would just foul Ben at the end of games 
uh, and hope hope that he would just keep missing free throws. Um, and it was happening. He was he was making like 30 something percent for a while. I believe it squeaked on up to like 40 mid 40s, uh, which is still really bad. Um, I might even be wrong on that. It might have not even eclipsed 40, but it got so bad that he was not being aggressive at all taking to the rim. So at that point, what is he even out there for? His main skills as a player on offense, he is an elite level playmaker. And a huge part of that is how he puts pressure on the rim, especially in the open court. So in transition, when he has a full head of steam, uh, that's when he's at his best. But in the half court scenario, his value comes from putting pressure on the rim. And usually that's with the ball in his hands. And especially, you know, that that's just the way that, especially Doc Rivers has used him and Brett Brown did in the past as well. He experimented last year a little bit with using him a little bit more as a role man, which I thought it should have been done like this whole time. And Doc Rivers, I feel like does have partly to blame with that. He doesn't, I don't think he's utilized Ben the best ways so far in his Philadelphia career, which is just one year. But I mean, uh, Doc Rivers, his uh, Philadelphia career, but still anyways, Ben Simmons on offense, like other than being a decent screen setter and cutter, which is still the same thing. It's still like the reason why he's he's a threat at that at those things is the pressure that he puts on the rim. He's not going to score from anywhere else. And he's an athletic, you know, 6'10 dude. So he puts pressure on the rim. It's kind of a nuanced basketball take, but that's just as valuable as three-point spacing. Really, um, it depends on how your team is structured, but the way that that Philly's roster is structured in most lineups, that is a super valuable thing. The, the, the pressure that Simmons puts on the rim, uh, having four out you know, around him, um, Embiid can stretch the floor. Obviously, Tobias Harris, uh, Seth Curry is a lights out shooter, as we know. Danny Green's a good spot up shooter. Um, whoever else they had out there, Thibel was actually even improving a little bit in that department this year. So like even in Philadelphia's horrible shooting system, in the years past, this is the better three-point shooting team probably that they've had the past three or four years, ever since JJ Redick left, and maybe even the last year with JJ Redick, this team is even better than that. But even though they've been a poor space team, um, very clunky offense the past several years, in that four, three or four-year stretch, nobody in the NBA created more three-point opportunities for his teammates than Ben Simmons, and that's just because of how centralized and focused his skill set is. It's not because he is the best uh, at putting pressure on the rim in the NBA. I believe, you know, Giannis and maybe even like Anthony Davis, a couple other guys would probably be, you know, above him or at least right there with him. Uh, Giannis definitely above him, but but the difference is Ben Simmons, that's his only thing. That's all he does offensively is puts pressure on the rim. And he's a great passer. He's a better passer than Giannis is. So that's a that's a huge part in getting, you know, the ball to the open man. A lot of times swing, swinging it across to, uh, you know, kind of flank the rotation of the defense. that will be a much longer pass to make. And the more skillful passer will definitely have the advantage there, obviously. So the way Ben Simmons creates value is he attacks the rim and causes the defense to collapse and kicks it out to shooters. That's like the whole blueprint. So if he stops attacking the rim, if he stops driving at the rim, and even if he does a little bit, you know, a lot of times he would just pass out of those drives or he would give up wide open opportunities. There's that one famous clip of him right next to the rim with, with a, I think he got an offensive rebound, but he was right there for a dunk. And it was Trey Young, six foot nothing. Trey Young was rotating over under the basket to him. It was not a threat to him at all. You know, Trey Young might have tried to foul him hard, but Ben Simmons is 6'10 and like has at least 50 something pounds, probably more than that, on Trey Young. So 
I'm sure he would have a pretty good chance of finishing through that contact. But that's just how much of a mind game it was for Ben Simmons. He just passed out of it. He didn't even want to deal with like the chance of him going to the line late in the game. And so he passed it up to Thibel, who's, you know, he's a better uh, free throw shooter than Simmons is, but he's still not a good one. And, you know, he didn't have as near, of a, near as good of a look as Simmons did. And he got fouled and sent to the line and missed the first one. Um, he missed one of them. It doesn't really matter which. But that was a big pivotal moment in the game, as Embiid uh, stated in the postgame interview, where he kind of threw Ben under the bus there a little bit. That's where this whole thing kind of started. Ben Simmons' horrible performance in the playoffs, just complete, like, total collapse became an absolute zero. I think in the whole playoffs, in like the fourth quarter, he had like a total of like four points the entire playoffs, something like that. I don't I don't know if I'm exaggerating that, but it's, it's something like that. You should look it up. He played really poorly and he gave up the part of his game on offense, the only thing that made him valuable, which was his threat to score at the basket. And he also didn't want the ball in his hands because he didn't want to be fouled. And that's what the other team wanted to do was keep fouling him because he was gonna he just kept missing them. You would think after a while he would develop a little bit of a rhythm, but I mean he's he's not typically that bad at free throws. Uh in the regular season, he has a much higher percentage. It's not it's still not good, but it's at least to the point where it's a somewhat efficient offense that you don't wanna it's not like an advantage for the defense to just send him to the line every single possession because he, you know, makes in the regular season in his career, like I, I believe like six out of 10, somewhere in that range. And that's a W for, for the offense uh, most times, but taking a, you know, 20 to 30% dip in efficiency from the line is, is all is that's huge. And that's what was going on. So, and after they got eliminated from the playoffs, I think, yeah, I think that was in the elimination game that that dunk, that passed up dunk happened. And so Embiid kind of threw him under the bus, the post game interview. Doc Rivers was asked in the postgame interview, do you believe that Ben Simmons uh, could be, what do you say, a point? I think he said point guard on a championship team, which is a whole other subject. I'll just go off on it right now because this is my show. I just don't like it when people call Ben Simmons a point guard. I, I'm sorry, I don't. I shouldn't say it like that. I'm fine with people calling him a point guard in the sense of like, I don't know, when you're doing more of a deep dive, like kind of talking about his offensive game. But I, I just hate it when people like go out of their way to... Like Ben Simmons gets called a point guard more than like Mike Conley gets called a point. Like you never hear people go like, you know, Utah Jazz point guard, Mike Conley. It's just kind of like Mike Conley of the Utah Jazz. I don't know. I feel like whenever people mention Ben Simmons, they're always like Philadelphia point guard. It's like, okay, it, it just bothers me. Is LeBron a point guard? I know that a lot of people would say that too. And that kind of bothers me too. Do we really have that little creativity that every player that we see that can have the ball and initiate offense, um, that's just, that's a point guard? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Describing somebody's game, play style, I don't think it really defines their position in basketball. In other sports it does, and I'm fine with using it as like a stereotype thing. Like I would never say that Bruce Brown for the for the Nets, I would never call him a center. Or I would never call him Brooklyn Nets big Bruce Brown. But if you watch the Nets offense, Bruce Brown plays like a big man would in in your traditional stereotypical offense. He's the role man. He's uh, you know, an off ball cutter. He scores at the rim all the time. And he's a six, three ish guard. You know, I still call him a guard. I'm, pr I'm pretty sure most like rosters and stuff still list him as a guard. That's just because he's not as famous of a person, honestly. And somebody had the crazy idea of like, oh, this guy's six ten and has like guard skills. So we're going to start calling him a point guard just because, you know, that will get people's attention. I honestly think that's, that's what it was about. Like people who don't watch a ton of NBA basketball or whatever, they would tune in and be like, whoa, you know, this number one pick from the draft and plays for Philadelphia. He's a 6'10 point guard. 
honestly, if I was alive back in the 80s, I'm not sure if I would have been too fond of like people calling Magic Johnson a point guard. I still I still list him as a point guard all the time just because that's what everybody lists him as. But I don't know. I'm much more about like defense when I think about positions and more specifically like player dimensions, like their size and mobilities, like their measurables. That's like the position that they are. And the reason why I say this is because like even when a couple of years ago, like they they started listing LeBron James as point guard on the Lakers, I guess just for the fun of it. Sorry, there's a train. But that was like a really big thing too. They were really trying to push that down everybody's throat was that he's he's a point guard. They kept reiterating it. It would be all over stuff like for the all-star game and stuff like that. They were like, and for all NBA teams, like, oh, he has to be listed as a guard. I'm not sure if they actually do that. There's a lot of talk around that anyways. But it was like, okay, so if he's a point guard, when you look at their lineups, why do they have KCP and Alex Caruso out there? Two and like like you know every lineup has like at least one sometimes even two guys that was like a you know six two to six four five somewhere in there uh, guard that was you know guarding the backcourt players and playing guard like they were they were playing those positions they were playing point guard and shooting guard LeBron was essentially the small forward or power forward usually in terms of matchups like who do you match up with on the other team and in general you know in general where what position on the other side of the court are you going to be matched up with most of the time that's your position that's what i would say uh that's the i think that's the best way to define it at this point because you know everybody that's such like a big topic is of everybody like always talking about oh the game is becoming so positionless like positions don't mean anything anymore but then they continue to like just throw around all the position terms willy-nilly again i'm fine with using them in the context of describing players but not in terms of like categorizing them of what like listing them on the roster as a thing like i would not call ben simmons a guard i would not call ben simmons a backcourt player i would not call him on the i would not list him as a guard on the all nba teams i would not do that does he guard guard sometimes on defense yeah because he's a super versatile defender he's a swiss army knife defender he's but he's 610 and he lines up on the end other end of the court most times with big wings he's a big wing defender his position is he's a big wing that's what i would call him so he's a forward typically the power forward although with tobias harris probably the small forward most of the time another thing my team the nuggets they always list you know even though aaron gordon guards the threes most of the time he guards the small forwards and mpj guards the power forwards they still list mpj as the three and aaron gordon as the four just because they look at it offensively it's just to me offensively positions really don't mean anything anymore any player of any size can have really any skill set for the most part so why try to define the position based off their offensive skill set it's just like a very slippery slope to me but anyways back to the braun james thing it's just very funny when they were like he's a point guard he is the lakers point guard they do need to have somebody out there uh kcp to guard the opposing team's point guards and then also there was a big narrative for a while because like LeBron James was getting tired and, you know, wore out because, you know, he's getting up there in years, obviously. The, what the Lakers need is uh, another guy to initiate, to bring, you know, bring the ball up the court for the Lakers on offense. That's not LeBron. Uh, so, you know, LeBron can can save his energy for the half court sets or whatever. It's like, so how is he? OK, how is he a point guard now? You began with calling him a point guard just because he was bringing the ball up the court and initiating everything. 
So he doesn't defend point guards and now he doesn't even bring the ball up the court and isn't like the initial initiator. He's still the primary initiator because obviously every, like he's going to initiate most of the sets. Everything's going to go through him. Like he's going to get touches more than anybody, obviously, but that doesn't mean he's a point guard. Jokic gets the most touches on the Nuggets. Like every set runs through him. Is he a point guard? No, you could describe him as like a point center. I'm fine with that. That's not a position. He's a center. He guards centers. He's seven foot and like 260 something pounds. He's a center. LeBron James, 6'9", 250 something. He's, he's a forward at least. But anyways, I've gone on this rant kind of before. Um, it's gonna be something I continue to do because I, there's not a whole lot of people uh, that agree with me on this. I don't think at least. I haven't heard this as a take from other people. This is just kind of one of my takes that I keep coming back to. Ever since we started calling like these huge people point guards, it, ne it never really sat right with me, I guess. Um, just cause I was like, that's really a limit. That's a very limited way to think about <laughs> like a position cause you're making it undefinable now. If you're if you're doing that just because you're like oh this guy can pass and he he has the ball a lot he, he must be the point guard offenses have been running through players of different positions for quite a while now obviously it's, it's happening more and more it's becoming like much less dependent on position than it ever has but that doesn't mean there's not positions there's still size matchups like teams are still rolling out lineups with the backcourt size players you know the the six three guys up to the seven footers and teams match up with each other and that's just how it works so those are positions anyways ben simmons the philadelphia 76ers forward point forward if you will i can't remember why i got on the position right oh yeah doc rivers doc rivers in the post game interview was asked uh do you believe that Ben Simmons can be the point guard on a championship team. And Doc Rivers responded with something like, uh, I don't know the answer to that question right now. Um, this was, again, you know, right after they got eliminated from the playoffs. So he was pretty, you know, upset and emotional. But anyways, those two things, Embiid throwing him under the bus in his interview and Doc Rivers saying not so supportive things about him in his postgame interview, uh, that really, I think, made Ben Simmons decide he really didn't want to return to Philly. Also, probably seeing all those videos of fans burning and like stomping on his jerseys right outside of the arena. You know, there were people like threatening his life and stuff like that. People in Philly were not happy then, and that has continued until now. Everybody still wants him out of Philly. Even Anthony, our friend, that's usually a more reasonable fan as far as Sixers fans go. Uh, so that's a very low bar to reach, but he's usually, you know, a more reasonable one out of those ones. And he lives in Nebraska, so a little bit less engulfed in the the Philly culture, I guess. Even he does not want to see Ben Simmons back on the court for the Sixers. He really wants him out. So for just about anything at this point. But the thing about that is they have a really smart GM there in Philadelphia, president of basketball operations, whatever it is. I believe uh, Elton Brand is technically the GM and Daryl Morey is the president of basketball ops. But anyways, Daryl Morey, super smart guy. He's made lots of really good deals in the past. He's one of the pioneers in the analytics community of basketball over the past couple decades. And he's all about really unconventional type of trades and deals, not just giving up assets because the narrative or uh, it's an unhappy situation and things like that. He, he really does a good job of not losing sight of the actual value of different assets and making sure that he gets even more value back. Getting equal value in a trade back, I feel like for him and his eyes is settling. 
So this summer he's been patiently, you know, asking all around, not panicking about uh, Ben Simmons is saying he doesn't want to come to training camp and he's never going to play for the Sixers again. That that stuff that's been coming out the last few days. He's been waiting patiently, I think, just prodding around, uh, trying to find the best offer uh, that he can get out of everybody. Um, I think he's just taught, like he's just asking for the top shelf type of deals so far, like Dame, like Bradley Beal, maybe Levine. But I don't even know, like honestly, in my eyes, the Bulls trading Levine over uh, for Simmons straight up is a loss for the Bulls, in my opinion. But I would go as far as to say Daryl would even see that as a loss. Not necessarily as a loss, but not the best thing that he can get. Lower than what he can get out of Ben Simmons. So I don't know if Daryl Morey has reached that point yet either, if he's if he would be willing to do a deal like that. But then you see other markets like Sacramento, uh, who was a team for a while that's been you know in the Ben Simmons kind of sweepstakes, if that's what we want to call it. They, they came out and said, that De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton were both off the table for a Ben Simmons deal. They were both untouchable. They weren't going to give either of those guys up in a Ben Simmons trade, which I like, again, Daryl Morey, if he was offered Fox for Simmons straight up, I doubt he would say yes right now, at least. And, you know, I would say Fox is maybe a little bit below Levine uh, in terms of asset value, I would say. I feel like that's an agreeable thing to say. Most people would probably agree with that. I guess I'm, I'm kind of losing sight on my gauge of how good Zach Levine is because I feel like he's very polarizing. There's a lot of people that really like him and there's a lot of people that really don't care much about him. Um, Fox is kind of similar, but in a more quiet way, I guess. Anyways, Tyrese Halliburton being off limits for Ben Simmons, again, is interesting. Does not sound like Sacramento is too keen on adding Simmons, which is odd because they just last season were the worst, one of the worst defense is an NBA history and Simmons would be a very, very useful <laughs> tool uh, for that team. But who knows? Um, and they're, you know, young rebuilding team uh, or, you know, in the process of building at least that could afford to take a swing on Simmons upside. So I don't know. You know, they're not locked into really like Fox is there. But now I guess they're locked in on Halliburton and Fox. So I don't know. I was about to say they're not locked in on like a franchise cornerstone right now. Um, depends on what you think of Fox. I tend to really like Fox, but is his ceiling, you know, number one player on a really, really good team? I don't know. So I would think, though, a team that would want to bring Simmons in would be a team that uh, would be willing to kind of build around him for the most part. And Fox and Simmons aren't like a horrible combination, I would say. It's not great and it's not ideal by any means. They definitely do not elevate each other's play, but uh, you know, Fox is improving as an outside shooter. It's still one of his main weaknesses. We have no idea what Ben Simmons will look like next year. I'm, I'm sure that most people probably would say that, you know, they're positive he's gonna look exactly the same, if not worse, but I don't know. Like this is different. This is a different kind of off season than he's ever had. I know that he's had off season in the past where everybody's saying he needs to work on shooting. This is different. This is just, this is a different one. I don't know how he's going to respond. I could see it going either way. Honestly, he could improve. He could, he could mold his game a little bit, change it a little bit. Who knows if he's thinking much at all about building a sustaining high level career in the NBA moving forward, he should probably start thinking about, you know, developing some other tools offensively, not necessarily shooting threes a lot. Lot, but shooting them when he's given completely wide open opportunities, especially in like the first half of regular season games and stuff like that, maybe start taking those. But if he if he even develops just a little bit of like an interior mid range, you know, turnaround fadeaway post game, you know, high post type stuff to score more efficiently and just make more free throws, get above the 60% mark and stay there even in the playoffs, 
even that would be a really good player. He'd be a really good player. Uh, he just would be. And in a different system that's more, you know, spaced out, uh, where there's not like a huge interior presence uh, on the court with him, he might even be a lot more free to put even more pressure on the rim, create even more outside shots for the teammates around him, and be a little bit more in type of like uh, Giannis role. Yeah. To wrap this up, though, uh, so I think it was yesterday, if not two days ago now, I believe it was yesterday, uh, Gerson Rosas uh, of the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves, he got fired. Uh, he was the president of basketball operations, for anybody who doesn't know, which was a shock because for a little while now, he's been kind of regarded as one of the better GMs in the league. And he also comes from a very reputable executive tree, whatever you want to call it. He used to work under uh, Daryl Morey, ironically. And again, like right before training camp is about to start, Wolves kicked him out and promoted somebody uh, from within, I believe. I think it, it must have been, you know, assistant GM or some, something like that. But the funny thing is Carl Anthony Towns, the star player on the Minnesota Timberwolves, he has been for the past half decade, other than when Jimmy was there, I guess. But he didn't know about it, apparently. Uh, they did not consult their star player before firing their president of basketball operations um, right before training camp. And we know that because Carl Anthony Towns, cat for short, tweeted out something like, what the heck is going on? Or, you know, something like that. Uh, shortly after that news dropped. So that doesn't sound very good for Timberwolves fans who want to keep Cat, which I assume are all Timberwolves fans. I don't really, I don't really know. I guess I don't have the gauge on Wolves fans. I don't really know any, but Cat is a, a very skillful player entering his prime and your team is really bad. So I'd assume you would want him unless you are, you know, one of those fans that are, you know, super into, you know, the long-term long game of tanking and everything like some OKC fans have been forced into lately but initially i was really confused because it doesn't make any sense i believe chris vernon tweeted this out but you know this is also my initial reaction of you know something must have happened something must be going on beyond the statement they gave out which was something along the lines of he was fired because of recent team success uh, like the lack thereof over the past several seasons okay so why why let him make all these moves that he made in the offseason they made quite a few trades they made some moves and then you're gonna fire him right before you start training camp I don't really see how that makes sense. And then also I was thinking in regards with the Simmons trade, because the Wolves have been like one of the top teams on the in the Simmons, you know, realm of trade talks for a while now. And all of those trades uh, were based around like, you know, D'Angelo Russell, uh, Malik Beasley, some probably with Anthony Edwards as like a piece being thrown in there to make it interesting and picks and stuff like that. Not like a whole lot of really things that you can do with Wolves trade package that would make a whole lot of sense for the Sixers. At least, you know, D'Lo and, and Beasley can shoot, which is good. But who knows if those are really the type of guys that is going to, you know, put the Sixers over the hump. The Sixers want to win now. They want to make this Simmons move into something that they can get back to help them win. Um, they don't want, you know, draft capital and stuff like that unless you have something lined up, you know, where they can flip that immediately for a win now type of piece. And I always thought that the Wolves were one of the main candidates for making the Sims trade because of Gerson, Rosas, and Daryl Morey's relationship. You know, those guys are buddies. They might work out a deal together. But unless there's just something completely different about, like, it's not related to the Simmons trade talk at all, and there's something really internal, like, you know, something bad happened or, you know, something really went down between Gerson, Rosas, and, 
and other people there in the Wolves front office or something or along those lines. It's also new ownership, so who knows? But that's it's really poor timing because new ownership took over last. It, it's been a while now, so that they they, they could have made this move before the offseason started. And they, I mean, their their offseason started way before the actual offseason started because they missed the playoffs and everything, obviously. So it's very weird timing. So that makes me think it's got to be something you know we don't know about that's warranting firing a president of basketball operations that doesn't have anything to do with actual basketball moves or it's something that has to do with actual basketball moves. And if you were thinking about that, what that would be, I've, it's got to be with the Simmons trade. What else would be going on? You know, are the, the Wolves aren't candidates for like going out and getting Bradley Beal. I don't think at least that would be pretty wild or Dame. Dame would not. Okay. That, neither Bradley Beal or Dame would want to go to Minnesota. I would, would do not foresee that happening. Both those guys have too much leverage of, you know, those are guys that have earned, you know, the leverage that they have in terms of where they get moved uh, and the loyalty to their, to their team and to their fan base and everything. Ben Simmons doesn't really have that. And he has four years left on his deal. So he has not much leverage in terms of where he goes, but he is represented by Clutch, who is pretty much the uh, agent pioneer of doing these like, you know, exploding the whole thing and leaving a situation in the worst way possible with a couple of his um, players or his clients now, namely Anthony Davis back in um, 2018 whatever that was with the Pelicans. I don't believe Clutch represents James Harden, but James Harden, I think he set a whole new precedent. And that's the thing that we're seeing Simmons do now. He's kind of doing the James Harden thing of I'm not coming to training camp, um, which actually was a little bit different. This is worse for multiple reasons. I mean, uh, yeah, that, that's true. It's, it's worse for multiple reasons. James Harden, um, number one, I don't think he ever said he's not going to training camp. He just wasn't answering any calls or anything. He didn't show up and he wasn't talking to the new head coach that they hired, Steven Silas, and he wasn't answering phone calls and he was out partying and stuff like that, going to clubs during COVID and everything, which was against, you know, all the NBA mandates and stuff. And then when he finally did show up to training camp, which was a few days late, he was really out of shape, probably the worst shape he's been in in his career. And he he played uh, most of the games at the beginning of the season. I believe he played eight or seven or seven out of the eight or eight out of nine, something like that games that they had while he was there in Houston at the beginning of the season. And he really mailed them in, was not giving forth any sort of an effort, which was obvious. But like, so all this was horrible. And I was really not happy about it at the time because of the precedent it was setting and the precedent that actually Adam Silver and the league were setting by not cracking down on it in any way and not allowing the Rockets to stop paying him, uh, you know, or not pay him for his job that he's not doing. So I, I was a little scared of that because if that's happening, it's just going to keep getting worse probably. And while we have this commissioner and Adam Silver. And the reason why Ben Simmons situation is even worse is because everyone, he is actually saying um, in reports and like to the 76ers front office that he's not going to come to training camp. And he's not ever going to play for the 76ers again. Like he's straight out saying that he's not going to do it and that he wants to be traded. And he has a specific list of where he wants to get traded. I believe he has uh, Golden State and the two LA teams on there. So he's demanding a lot for, you know, not, he doesn't have much leverage. He has four years left on his deal his value, the value of him as an asset is totally tanked and he's making it worse by what he's doing. But also the advantage, I guess, the, the thing that makes it not as terrible on Ben Simmons' side versus the James Harden thing, the advantage that he does have in, in this scenario or in this comparison is that Ben Simmons is outright like hated in Philadelphia. Philadelphia wants nothing to do with him as far as the fan base goes, especially. It's not like he's a beloved figure there, really, nor has he really ever had been. 
that didn't sound right. But anyways, there, even though, like I said before, there was a time where there was a discussion between uh, Simmons and Embiid, like there, those were two actual camps. The Simmons camp was never quite as big as the Embiid camp was. They got to a point where they were somewhat comparable, but Embiid was, has always been, he's been the process. That's his name. You know, that that's what they call him. He's the Sixers guy. It's just not the same thing. James Harden brought the Rockets to be one of the best teams in the NBA over the course of his eight-year career there. Led the league in scoring a multiple of those seasons. He won an MVP. He was, he came in like the top three MVP voting, like four of those years. A revolutionary player. One of the best Rockets of all time, if not the best. Um, I probably wouldn't put him over Hakeem, obviously, just because the ring thing um, mainly. Also, if you just took away rings in general and compared them as like overall players, I still probably would take Hakeem just because of the two-way impact. They both have MVP awards. I think Hakeem's came at a little bit of a tougher time, I would say maybe. No, actually probably not because his MVP award came when Michael Jordan was not in the league while he was playing baseball. So I guess that took, you know, the competition level quite a bit down. But anyways, again, this doesn't matter. But James Harden was beloved in Houston. And he basically just kind of spat on a city and a fan base that really respected him and wanted him, um, you know, wanted him to stay and, you know, didn't really apologize much for it. Um, I think he did apologize to like Steven Silas, the head coach and team. I don't even know if he apologized. I think he just went over after he got traded to the Nets when they met again for a game. He went over to them and like shake their hand. This Ben Simmons thing that's happening is kind of like that. It's just this player empowerment thing is getting just more and more extreme in the terms of them calling their shots when they don't have any leverage like at all, or at least don't have any leverage by the way we used to define leverage. But it seems like it doesn't really matter anymore, especially when you have the right agent like Clutch, uh, Rich Paul. Anyways, though, as I was saying, the Wolves, Gerson Rosas getting canned right before training camp starting. I think it could have something to do with the Simmons deal. If it's something that is basketball move related, that seems like the most obvious one. It could be that, you know, leadership there, the new owners, I can't remember his name, I'm sorry. I'm not referring to A-Rod, by the way. I know who A-Rod is, but the majority owner, the guy who really has the big money that bought the team with A-Rod. Somebody there might want a Simmons deal done. And the fact that they didn't consult or talk to Kat about it makes me very skeptical of whether or not Kat might be part of the deal in some sort of way. And this got me thinking about Kat being traded, which is it's just weird. If I'm a Wolves fan, I don't know how I feel about giving up Kat for Simmons. I think that Philadelphia would have to throw in a little bit to really make that move. I don't know if Daryl would do that outright. He, again, might have to let it wait for a little bit to do that because he doesn't want to settle too much. But this got me thinking, you know, right away, I just thought maybe it's like the Simmons thing. Um, so I texted the guys, Anthony and Jacob. I said, did the Wolves just fire Rosas to promote somebody that will make the Simmons trade? And Jacob said, uh, LOL, I think it's the Sixers side, not the Timberwolves. I get what he means by that, just because... I think he thought I meant a deal or a package with just like D'Lo and Malik Beasley because I'm sure the Wolves probably were willing, like Rosas might have been willing to already give that. It's just Daryl Morey wasn't willing to take that at this time. But what I mean is, what if they were getting a president of basketball ops who would make that trade with Cat? You know, give give the piece in there that Daryl Morey would actually go for. This kind of got the conversation going differently. Now we're talking about why would you know the 76ers want Cat? And initially, in my mind, I wasn't necessarily thinking that the Sixers were going to get Cat straight up. They might involve a third or fourth team, or it could have been a thing that he flips Cat into something else right after the fact. Um, so it didn't necessarily mean that Cat was going to land in Philadelphia, but it would be the Wolves are trading away Cat and getting 
getting Simmons in return, whatever that looks like. You know, a three-team trade could work in that way. But I also wouldn't be super surprised if Daryl Morey actually did just go for Cat and get him on this Sixers roster. Um, just because it's something that I think would raise a lot of eyebrows. A lot of people in the general public would be like, that's weird. That doesn't make much sense. But I honestly, like, it's just kind of like a revolutionary or like a kind of outside the box thinking type of deal to make. Daryl Morey, you know, is prone to making deals like that. He just, he always has been. Also, Daryl Morey loves to trade for stars. If you look back at, you know, moves that he's made over the years, he really prioritizes getting a star in return, not like the quarters on a dollar, you know, several different players that are all good, but none of them are like a number one type of guy. He really wants to get that number one type of guy. He seems to value that even more than most GMs do. And here's the reason why I think it'll work. Uh, well, first I'll kind of go through this thing a little bit. So Jacob said, after I clarified, and said, what if the deal involves Cat? You know, he, he didn't even know that Gerson Rosas was going to get fired and they did it without consulting him. And Jacob was like, why would the Sixers want Cat? Understandably, that was my very, very initial thought at first too. Um, it took me, you know, a little bit to think about it. And after I did think about it, I'm, the more and more I'm liking it, honestly, uh, for the Sixers side of things. But Jacob said, why would the Sixers want Cat? It's the same problem. Maury wants to win the deal, but he also is a competent team builder. And I was like, I don't see how it's the same problem at all. So what he means is two centers, he said. So two guys that are going to do a lot of their work down low. And I don't blame Jacob for not watching a ton of Wolves. I don't blame him at all. But um, Carl Anthony Towns, he might be thought of by a lot of people as like a low post score because he plays center and everything. But the Wolves have been like trying to make, get him to do that more. That's been like kind of the arc of his career so far is that he has tended to kind of want to spot up and want to like score from the perimeter more than post up uh, and stuff like that. He personally his play style that he seems to gravitate towards seems like it would be more perimeter centric than, you know, in the post. So, and this is something that I thought of before too, like just, you know, making random teams on 2K, that cat as a stretch four would be an interesting idea if he was on the same team as like an elite post threat or elite post player and just be like a mega floor spacer at the four position that still gives you a lot of size as well. But Jacob said, yeah, they have very different skill sets, but that doesn't make them better. They lose so much on defense to gain barely anything on offense because they are filling a void they have already filled. I don't know what that means exactly, but with the defense and offense thing, the trade-off, obviously big step down on defense, just on paper from Simmons to Cat. Simmons, probably the most mobile 6'9 plus guy uh, in the league right now, as far as defending across positions. And Cat is very not mobile. That's like his weakness. I shouldn't say mobile because he can he can move. He's a nimble guy, but uh, defensively, he's not great on the perimeter. Uh, if he's brought out, like stretched out on an island, you know, to defend in space, whatever you want to call it. When he gets switched on to wings and guards, that's usually when he gets burned. But for the most part, that's, you know, them getting past him to get to the rim. And he's, you know, brought out pretty far. So there's no rim protection because he is the rim protector on their team. That's the way it always has been in Minnesota. He's been the rim protector his whole career there with the Sixers. Embiid is a monster rim protector. One of the very best in the league, perhaps even top two with the Gobert. And we just don't even see him protect the rim even as much as we see some of the other, you know, high level rim protectors in the league, like Gobert, like Capella, like Miles Turner, like Anthony Davis, those guys, just because of how tight knit the Sixers perimeter defense has been, uh, they're very switchable. They fight over screens. They defend well at the point of attack. So there's not a whole lot to defend at the rim, usually not near as much as some of those other teams. The way those other teams construct their defenses, especially the Jazz and the Pacers and Hawks have kind of followed a similar blueprint, not necessarily maybe intentionally in every case, but all three of those teams are built around their defense, at least is built around an elite rim protection 
protector and everybody else is either average defensively or a liability. Other than in Atlanta's case, DeAndre Hunter, but he was out for a lot of the season last year and out for most of the playoffs last year as well. So I'm not really counting him when I'm talking about the Hawks defensive scheme. Cam Reddish was really the only guy that came in there and defended the same type of way. And it wasn't quite to the same level, but it was an approximation of what DeAndre Hunter does on the defensive end on the perimeter. But the way those teams' defenses are constructed and the way they work is they got a really elite rim projector that basically swallows everything up at the rim. Like it's really efficient defense to just say, come challenge this guy at the rim replay we'll take that bet like we'll outscore you that way we think because that rim protector is going to be efficient enough at defending the paint that you won't score too much basically um and in the jazz case you won't score very much at all we're going to funnel everything to go bear because he's one of the best shot blockers in the history of the universe so he's just going to challenge your shot every time at the rim and he's going to have a really good efficiency doing that that's why utah is in the top 10 usually top five defense in the nba every single year even though they don't have any good perimeter defenders other than royce o'neill i'll give him you know a shout out there just one guy and really the main thing with that team is not even necessarily the personnel it's mainly the scheme and so the scheme there in utah under coach quinn snyder is defensively don't prioritize getting blown by like give up attacks at the rim if you're a perimeter defender really take away the three-pointer and outside shots really close out really stay tight on those guys out on the perimeter like space the defense just like most teams offenses try to do to defenses most of the time is you're trying to space out the defense to allow a room to work or whatever but with teams that have an exception where they have an elite rim protector that they're fine doing that like the jazz it's how they win games a lot of times on the defensive end is they stay tight to shooters to make the three-point shot much less valuable for the other team and force them to take the ball inside and that's a battle that they're willing to enter uh, because gobert is a really good rim protector i think i've said that enough same type of blueprint for capella and the hawks and miles turner and the pacers that's why those guys rack up so many blocks per game but what we've seen from the Jazz in the playoffs the last couple of years now, I think, and I think it's really just because of how good Gobert has been in that and how good Utah has been using that system and how also good coaching adjustments and stuff have been in the West in recent years that this has gotten exploited. Like Gobert, kind of like Simmons, you know, his skill set is very centralized. So if you take away the thing that he's really good at, he becomes kind of a liability. So the thing that he's really, really good at is rim protection, defending at the rim. The thing that he's passable at is defending in space when he needs to. For an entire game though, not so much. Also, the rest of the defenders on the perimeter are one, not very good, below average for the most part as a whole team. Obviously other than Royce O'Neal, like I said before, but they're not as good at staying in front of their defender because they're not very good perimeter defenders. Number two, they're not used to that. They never have to do that throughout the entire season. Like it's probably very hard for them to make that mental switch in the playoffs when it happens to them where they have to do this now, uh, not allow the drive and not stay up so tight on the perimeter. It's probably a habit that's really hard to change and catches them off guard for sure. And Gobert obviously isn't like a lockdown defender in space just because of how big that guy is. He's not crazy mobile, but like he holds his own, I guess is what I'm trying to say for the most part when he needs to. But the Gobert treatment that he's gotten the last couple of years and why the Jazz have gotten knocked out of the playoffs is they stretch out the defense in a way where the opposing team, they'll go five out. Um, they'll usually go small. So there's nobody on the court for Gobert to defend that doesn't shoot. 
So everybody out there is a three-point threat. So Gobert has to be pulled away from the rim. And so what they'll do is they'll keep Gobert away from the rim, stretched out on somebody, and they'll usually bring the offensive action uh, over to the other side of the court, attack from the opposite side for the most part. You know, try to flank him in a way where it basically gives up the rim. Beating the Jazz has become so easy in the playoffs because it goes from them having unstoppable like rim protection for the most part to barely any rim protection at all. Like some of the worst rim protection there is because their whole entire thing is based on Gobert at the rim working. If you take that away, they don't have anything else to do. So it's a very smart thing <laughs> that teams have started doing to them. And some mainly something that the Jazz need to reevaluate in how they're structuring their defense and their roster as well. Because that's probably not going to work much more in the playoffs. And they need some big wing defenders and, and guys to defend on the perimeter. And it also kind of sucks that they just gave Gobert the biggest contract in center history, I believe. I think he's the highest paid center in the in NBA history now, which is just nuts. But as I was saying, Joel Embiid is an elite rim protector as well. But the defensive system he's in is he's like a last line of defense. Um, he's not like the only line of defense. They have Ben Simmons, they have Danny Green, they have Matisse Thibel, Tobias Harris even, big bodies, you know, guys that can defend out on the perimeter for the most part. You know, Ben Simmons being like one of the best ones in the league, Matisse Thibel being one of the up and coming best ones in the league also. Danny Green's just, you know, a veteran on that end, always going to be a really good guy on the perimeter in defense. Even the guys coming off the bench like Shake Milton, Forkan Korkmaz is also a pretty good like guard backcourt defender. He holds his own. So Joel Embiid doesn't get as much opportunity opportunity protecting the rim as most of those other guys, but his per capita or whatever you want to call it, I just thought of that. It's not called that, but like per possession or whatever, you know, his scaled stats are some of the best in the league. It suggests that he would be very, very, very effective in that role also as a Gobert, Turner, and Capella and those other guys. So without Simmons in there, it doesn't necessarily kill your defense because you still have Embiid as a rim protector that works really well, especially during the regular season for those other teams. And on top of that, I'd say you still have a better defensive core around Embiid than those other teams have with their guys for the most part. Yeah, I would say so. Because especially like when Atlanta is rolling out a lineup of like Trey Young, Bogdan Bogdanovich, Kevin Herter, Gallo, probably not all four of those guys at the same time. That rarely happens, I bet. Probably John Collins would be the next person, which again, isn't, I guess, much better than Gallo, obviously, but still not super great at point of attack. And then Capella holding up the middle. Like that's very bad. Like, you know, they they do have big wing defenders though, like Hunter and um, Cam Reddish, even the young guy, Onyeka um, Okongwu. You know, he's, he's a guy that's gonna be, you know, somewhat of a rim protector as well as defending in space, like kind of like a Bam out of bio, you know, Swiss Army knife or Ben Simmons, similar. Uh, that like prototype, not necessarily the same caliber. But the Sixers would still have Danny Green, which I guess isn't much, especially at whatever he is, like 34, 35 now, but you know, still somebody to defend. But Matisse Thibel, you know, is gonna step into that role really well on the perimeter. To, to be that guy that thrives at defending on the perimeter, defending in space, being the primary point of attack defender um, that they're going to put on all of the opposing teams, like best scorers and guards and wings and whatever, uh, for the most part, other than like the, those really supersized wings like a Kawhi or a LeBron. But uh, he, he still might be their best bet other than, I guess, maybe Toby in some cases. But I don't remember what I'm talking about. Do you remember? Simmons? Yeah, Thibel was kind of redundant before being used in Philly because it was like, this guy is amazing at defense. He's like probably the best young defender, like best right out of college, right into the league perimeter defender that there has ever been. Maybe some would say, at least in this like century, other than maybe Kawhi. But again, they're just different. Kawhi was more physically gifted in a way that, you know, his frame and everything. Matisse isn't near as big.
big, but just his hands. Matisse Thibel is just such a skilled defender. It's ridiculous. I believe he has the, the highest jump shot block rate in NBA history, which is nuts. I believe it's like by a mile too. Like he's like double whoever's in second. Again, on a small sample size, he doesn't get like a ton of minutes. And that goes along with what I'm saying. He's, he's been a redundant role with the Sixers his first two seasons so far because they have Ben Simmons on the team who does exactly what he does, but he's even a little bit more versatile because he's bigger and more experienced, I guess. And obviously gives more on the offensive end um, in terms of like overall potential and overall like ceiling. And also they pay Simmons a lot of money. So obviously they're going to play him a lot. But if Simmons is on the court, Matisse Thibel doesn't really make much sense to be on the court also for the most part. In most cases, unless there's really like, like a star studded team that they're going against where there's like you really want to lock them down and just go full defense mode. But having them both out there really sucks on the offensive end. Uh, it's going to be really hard to generate baskets. Thibel is not a very good shooter. That's definitely something that he's been working on though. He's He improved a little bit in his second season, but you know, at least he actually attempts them as opposed to Ben Simmons. But Thibel though, you know, he's not going to stretch the floor um, and he's not going to do anything else on offense really either other than be a guy who cuts and stuff like that. He's an off ball player. He's not going to do anything with the ball in his hands for the most part, other than maybe in transition or something. He's going to be relegated to a spot up shooter or a cutter, which is what Ben Simmons also does off ball. And Ben Simmons doesn't even shoot jump shots at all. So Thibel takes them, but the defense is willing to give them to him most of the time. Simmons doesn't even take them, so they don't even bother guarding. So that destroys your spacing. And it's also two guys that just aren't going to be super good at doing much offensively with that spacing, especially. And again, it's something that's probably not going to be ever really needed, having them both out there on defense at the same time, for the most part. Having made my point, he's redundant. He could fill a void on lots of teams in the NBA, viable that is. And one of those teams is a Ben Simmons-less Sixers team. So it wouldn't be like an unfathomable amount of pressure on Embiid at the rim if you got rid of Simmons because there's guys that can step up and fill that role a little bit at least. But still, having a ton of Embiid rim protection isn't the worst thing. Obviously, I don't love it because of how how not durable he's been his entire career. So, you know, putting more stress on him defensively, like putting more load, I guess, on his defensive plate is probably not the best idea. But at the same time, what Cat does bring to the defensive side of the ball is he's not a terrible rim protector. He's actually a decent rim protector in terms of just shot blocking, not necessarily in terms of guarding one-on-one -on -one a guy in the post. So he's best utilized, I would say, as a more of a roaming weak side rim protector. So that gives like a kind of a cushion of defense with Embiid and also prevents the other team doing the Gobert treatment to Embiid. Also, I didn't, I forgot to mention before, the reason why we haven't really seen much of the Gobert treatment with Capella and with Turner, I think personally, is just because, number one, Pacers have not gotten far in the playoffs at all. They knocked out the couple, first couple of rounds or the first round the last few years with Turner in that role because the rest of the team isn't super good yet. And then with the Hawks, obviously this was the first year that they were in the playoffs, but every team that they ran across were teams that, basically the only teams in the league that would never try that, that would never do things like that. They ran across coaches like uh, Mike Budenholzer uh, in the second round, or no, in the third round, sorry. Second round was Doc Rivers. First round was Tom Thibodeau. Yeah, it was the full platter of coaches that are not going to change anything about their schemes in the playoffs uh, for the most part. So that's the reason why we haven't seen it really done to Capella and Turner, where they go five out and try to neutralize the threat of the rim protection, which leaves the rim as easy money for uh, any of their guys to basically get past the perimeter defense and score at the rim. But anyways, the reason why I I don't think that will work super well against the Sixers, at least not in the same way as it does against Gobert and the Jazz, is because the Jazz do not have anywhere close to like a weak side rim protector or anybody else that can actually rotate over and form some semblance of a shot blocker. Cat can definitely do that 
Like that honestly might be his best utilized defensive role is being a secondary rim protector. So now, you know, there's two guys out there that you have to sort of flank when you're going five out. If you do try that, you might have them both stretched out, but those are two guys that can rotate over to protect the rim when needed. And the defense can rotate and adjust if one of those guys does, you know, fully commit to a drive to come over and help. Like they have more freedom to do that then. And it's harder, it's harder to beat is I guess is what I'm trying to say than simply pulling out the one rim protector that they have and flanking that and getting to the rim because they try to get to a place where he can't possibly be able to help and rotate over. And if he does, it's going to burn them because they, they can kick it out to shooters and everything like that. But the Sixers having two guys that can do that, that can rotate over to help protect at the rim, makes it harder to avoid and also makes it easier for the defense to adjust and rotate to not give up as many threes. So that's the reason why I think it works defensively. It's not ideal. Like I said before, the defense is not going to be as good as it was with Simmons, but it's not a bad defense, I would say, if Embiid stays healthy, which is a huge if, ginormous if. Also, the biggest if, honestly, is Doc Rivers making the defensive scheme, like I'm saying, because typically Doc Rivers and I do not have the same um, ideas. Then obviously the big thing is offensively. So the other thing that Jacob said was uh, it's not much of an improvement offensively, which I disagree with 1000%. There's no question. Like the one reason you don't want to make that trade is the defensive thing, because you don't want to put too much pressure on Embiid at the rim and Cat's not mobile enough in most cases for what most people would think of as a four on defense. But I would say there's guys that play four that nobody nobody thinks or bats an eye at them playing on the floor in playoff games, playing at the four. But I'd say they are even worse than what Cat could be at the four uh, on defense. And that is a guy like Gallo, similar height, 6'10", versus Cat's like 6'11", 7 foot, something like that. But obviously Gallo is, he's a stretch big, he's a stretch four. Defensively, he's not mobile at all. He's not even a like weak side rim protector in any way. The things that he can do on defense is he is smart and has pretty good awareness are the main things that, you know, I'd say he has over cat his hands maybe um, to break up passes and, and, you know, get his hands on things sometimes, but he's not as mobile as Cat is, especially at his age now. Cat is much more physically gifted to be good at defense than Gallo is. We're like, that's not even a competition. If Gallo was on the Sixers, people would call that a good move, but people don't think of Cat on the Sixers as a good move just because he's a center who's known to be bad at defense. But if people knew more about what Carl Anthony Towns does on offense and defense, really, the way that he's built, He's not just this big seven footer that doesn't move. He runs the floor really well. Uh, he's really good in transition. A lot, if you watch cat highlights, a lot of them are like, you know, in the open court, running the lane, getting dunks, you know, handling the ball, like going coast to coast type stuff. Not as much as like Simmons or Giannis, obviously, but that he has that in, in his repertoire. He's honestly one of the best shooting bigs in the league. He's probably on a similar level as Gallo as a shooter. Gallo isn't near as mobile to get open and create space and, you know, create his own shot type of thing on the perimeter as Cat is. Like the only thing in Gallo's bag at this point in terms of shot creation is standing far enough out that the defense isn't super close on him. So he does have a little bit of space to just fire off like, you know, 35 footers every once in a while. And that's not super efficient offense. But the other thing is like high post, mid-range post up, you know, turnaround fadeaway type stuff uh, where he doesn't have to be super mobile, but he's tall enough to just have that release over the defense where he gets it off pretty clean. Um, and that's basically the only thing that he has. And, you know, Cat has that too. Cat also has more mobility and more handles as well to create shots on all three levels and puts pressure on the rim. 
He's not afraid to attack the basket because he's not afraid to shoot free throws. He's a really good free throw shooter. I believe he's one of the highest free throw rate guys in the league as far as big guys go. Like he shoots a lot of them and he shoots them in a very good clip, mid eighties, I believe. So that's a huge step up, obviously. But yeah, the biggest thing is, like I said, he's going to be a floor spacer that really elevates Embiid's like offensive capabilities to another level. And if you're worried about Embiid being, you know, used too much on the defensive end of the floor, expending too much energy as a rim protector. Number one, another thought I just had that might be good for him because maybe he might be more conditioned because he has more responsibility. But if you are worried about him uh, having too much pressure on him as or too much responsibility as the uh, rim protector full time on defense and what that'll do to his durability and workload, Cat can alleviate a lot of Joel Embiid's offensive responsibilities or offensive workload. You know, he can make Embiid a more efficient offensive player, a guy with, you know, even less reps, which isn't necessarily what you want. But if you need to do it to conserve Embiid, uh, that can be done in a number of ways with Cat on the offensive end of the floor. Number one, because Cat himself is a pretty decent number one option on a team to score. Like he can create his own shot, like I said. They can stagger their minutes even, so one of them is in it at all times. And the other thing is Cat makes everybody else on the court with the Sixers an even better, you know, offensive creator or offensive threat as well, too, because of his ability to stretch the defense and put pressure on the rim. He, he has space creation going both ways. Obviously, not as much pressure on the rim as Simmons. Actually, I take that back. In this case of Simmons in the playoffs last year, even more pressure on the rim than Simmons had because Simmons wasn't doing anything. So guys that like last year that we saw kind of pop off as ISO scores a little bit with uh, with the Sixers, uh, Seth Curry, namely, Shake Milton a couple of years ago kind of came out in that way too. Furkan Korkmaz will probably get even more minutes with Simmons gone. Those guys will be even better in the roles that they play and creating a shot will come easier to them because of the you know new opportunities that they have. Obviously, I didn't even mention Tobias Harris, who is literally you know their second option off on offense. He's been that secondary you know shot creator even last year with Simmons. And really it kind of turned into Seth Curry as a third or the tertiary shot creator. And Simmons was kind of relegated to a role player on offense. But yeah, Tobias Harris would get even better as well uh, in terms of the stuff that he could do uh, in isolation because of the threat of having Cat out there as well. It's just, it opens up a lot of things. I feel personally, just because of the position that he plays and how good he can shoot. Uh, just replacing Simmons with a guy that can shoot super well and isn't just a shooter. He's a superstar, honestly. You know, some people might not call him that, obviously, because he plays for the Timberwolves and they're not good at all. They haven't been good since Jimmy was there. Cat has not been on a good team, you know? And Cat, I feel like, is one of those guys that's a very scalable player. He's not like a floor raiser, but he's kind of more of a ceiling raiser. Theoretically, you know, this is hoop theory. We've never seen it happen because he's on the Wolves, other than what well, we did see it happen with the Wolves when Butler was there. And it was because Cat was kind of the secondary guy. He was a guy that was, uh, he just elevated the play of Jimmy Butler, of their, their number one option because he was such an off-ball threat that it gave him so much space to create. But anyways, that's why I think that Cat on the Sixers could work. I never thought I would be making this argument, but I am. That'd be nuts if it does happen. But yeah, that was the theory of today's Hoop Theory episode. Cat on the Sixers, how it would work, what it would look like. I would say a lot better than what most people think and also a lot better than what I initially thought like right off the bat when I first thought of it. Like the reason it doesn't sound right at first is because of what Cat is currently. But if you just put him in a different scenario, he becomes something else. And it's something that it's like, it's entirely theoretical. It totally is, but it's compelling least in my eyes. It's actually not 100% theoretical because like what I said, we've seen some semblance of it before 
with the Wolves back when they had Butler, but that in a very different way. But we've seen him be a guy who elevates the play of other offensive players when he has the talent around him to where he can. And he's starting to do it at the end of last season. Um, he was in, and I believe if the Wolves start the season and go into the season with the roster that they have currently, I think you'll see more of it with him and Anthony Edwards him and even Malik Beasley and D'Angelo Russell, if he's going to be healthy. Who else do they have? Pat Beverly. You know, he's not going to be an ISO score, obviously, but I'm just trying to think of names of people that are on the team. But the, yeah, those guys are going to be the guys that score in isolation most of the time would be Edwards, D'Lo, and Malik Beasley alongside Cat, obviously. But yeah, we'll definitely see a lot of offensive potency out of the Wolves this next season, especially under Chris Finch for his first full length season as head coach. I think he's a really good offensive mind. You know, he's, he kind of implemented the offensive scheme that we currently use in Denver with Jokic. So obviously I have a pretty good opinion of him. But yeah, that's what they've been doing with the Wolves lately is doing a lot more two-man game with Cat, having him play off of other players on the team like Jokic does in Denver, doing a lot more handoffs, kind of initiating out of the post. Obviously not the same passer, not even in the same universe as Jokic, but Cat is still very solid, I would say, uh, is, is how I would grade him. A very solid big man passer. It's probably a big thing that they've worked on this offseason because of how much we saw Chris Finch begin to utilize that last season. I'm sure that's going to be a big part of their offensive scheme this year as well. So wouldn't be surprised if the offseason was focused on developing those kinds of skills. But other than that, I thought the topic for this episode was pretty good. Hopefully it worked pretty well. But I'll be coming back at you with uh, more of those episodes with Anthony and Jacob, hopefully very soon. Anyways, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Either one. This has been the Oscar Robertson episode of uh, Hoop Theory, episode one. So thank you very much. I will see you guys in the next one.